Shalom, and welcome to a special episode of Israel Policy Pod. My name is Margot Nykirk, and I am one of your hosts. Today, we're discussing the release of Israel Policy Forum's new study titled In Search of a Viable Option, Evaluating Outcomes to the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict by Dr. Shira Efron and Evan Gottesman, with a foreword by Ambassador Daniel B. Shapiro. The study we are discussing today assesses the strengths and weaknesses of seven different plans related to resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and trains a critical eye on whether a two-state solution is still possible. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Efron, Evan, and Ambassador Shapiro. Dr. Shira Efron, who was a co-author of the study, is a policy advisor at Israel Policy Forum. In parallel, she's a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. Evan Gottesman is the other co-author of the new study and is Israel Policy Forum's Associate Director of Policy and Communications. Evan is also a host of Israel Policy Pod and edits the Israel Policy Exchange. Ambassador Daniel Shapiro is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies. Before joining the INSS, Ambassador Shapiro served as the U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 2011 to 2017. Shira, Evan, Ambassador Shapiro, thank you for joining me. Good to be thank with you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So let's start from the beginning for our audience. Ambassador Shapiro, you wrote in your foreword that you privately called on the Obama administration to undertake a study like this. What do you see as being the purpose of a report like this? And I want to op- also open it up to Shira and Evan. When you started the research for the report, what were your main aims in producing this? So my experience in the first term of the Obama administration, in which I supported George Mitchell and our special envoys' uh, Middle East peace efforts, uh, convinced me that uh, the odds of success in the second term were not much better. We were very unsuccessful in the first term. And although Secretary Kerry was very eager to re-energize the talks, and obviously I supported that, uh, I felt it was necessary for us to evaluate uh, alternatives or different pathways or different scenarios in case we were unsuccessful, as ultimately we were, on the second term as well, uh, to try to understand uh, how U.S. interests will be affected by non-two-state outcomes. Uh, I didn't expect us to find that those would be uh, beneficial to U.S. interests, and I think this study uh, helps uh, demonstrate why, although there's more research that can be done in that area. But I did feel that that was a gap uh, in our understanding. U.S. policy has been so focused on trying to achieve a two-state solution, something I very much support personally as well as from a U.S. policy perspective. Uh, since the mid-1990s, but as its odds of success dwindle, uh, as more and more Israelis and Palestinians seem uh, to doubt that it can be achieved, and now even support for it is dropping, uh, it's a pretty good idea just on sound foreign policy making for us to understand what the suboptimal but perhaps more realistic outcomes are and then try to figure out how to, uh, assess, how to uh, assess how they'll affect U.S. interests. This study does the evaluation on the outcomes themselves. There's, the, I think, another uh, piece of research that can, this can be a helpful evaluative tool for in terms of how they will affect U.S. interests. When we approached this study, uh, I think it's no secret to our listeners that Israel Policy Forum is not agnostic to the question of a two-state solution. Of course, we as an organization support a two-state solution, but at the same time, uh, it's pretty much an, an open secret, not even an open secret, to say that there are legitimate questions to be asked about the viability of a two-state solution today, and those are being reinforced by discussions that are happening across the political spectrum on the far left, And on the right, I mean, we see with the release of the Trump plan, and we were ready to go to print on this study when the Trump plan was released, and then we kind of had to go back to basics with that. So in order to speak credibly about the two-state solution today, I think we need to really understand, uh, as Ambassador Shapiro said, what else is out there. So that is what Shira and I did in developing this study. 
Um, what we find in the study is that the two-state solution is the least flawed among an array of deeply flawed options, but it's only part of the story. We also had to decide which of the models we were going to look at. So we looked at these different models and we wanted to see which ones are being discussed by the people with the most influence in positions of political, government, uh, uh, academic, media, and civil society influence, regardless of our own personal feelings about them. Uh, for example, you have the Jordanian option, uh, which in short is a call for regime change in Jordan and a creation of an alternative Palestinian homeland there. Uh, for moral reasons, from a feasibility perspective, we think it's really far-fetched. Uh, but there are people who are really close to the Prime Minister of Israel who uh, are supportive of this option. There are people who are in what we would consider the centrist political alternative in Israel uh, who are supportive of those, uh, this option. And there are people who are high up in the organized West Bank settler movement who believe in this kind of a program. And we spoke to all of these people and we said, here's an idea that we need to take seriously because, uh, not because it has any kind of uh, intellectual merit or moral grounding, but because it's something that people in positions of power could really pursue and have the capacity to pursue it, may even do it in the near future. So that's really how we approached uh, this study. Just, just to add to it, I think, um, you know, we are hearing some people say, well, if it's not a two-state solution, then it's a one-state solution. Or a confederation sounds really appealing. Or on the other side of the spectrum, you hear people say, well, all they can get the Palestinians is autonomy, and that's it. Or uh, uh, sort of a blast from the past, as Evan mentioned, the Jordanian option, Jordan is Palestine. So our real goal, I think, and how we started this is, First, we had to uh, identify, um, as Evan said, the, the, the alternative approaches that are uh, being discussed uh, that are gaining some traction, both on the left and the right, uh, but also then to really hear what they're about. So um, we went to the sources, uh, both uh, literary sources, press sources, but also to the people themselves to hear what they're thinking and what their framing is and what... Um, what the plan is. Um, and then we um, systematically and I think pretty rigorously uh, try to uh, analyze them and compare um, how these different approaches um, uh, perform against a predetermined set of criteria that we deem as, as, as uh, really important. And the goal was also because we are realistic, you can write and indeed many books have been written about each one of these uh, approaches, but how do you also uh, bring this to you know a general audience in a digestible manner and this is this is what we uh, sought to do in this study I want to dive deeper into the into the contents of the study in it you you look at seven different options in terms of resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as we've mentioned the two-state solution seems is the most viable one what was the most surprising during your findings I have to say I was surprised that uh, evaluating the different scenarios, some that I thought were not uh, as bad as I thought were much worse than I thought. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, there is one option which some on the left call for uh, saying why not make it one democratic state, uh, one person, one vote for all Israelis and Palestinians between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean. I certainly don't favor that. I think that's quite antithetical to 
a Zionist vision of a of a Jewish homeland in the uh, in the in the uh, historic homeland of the Jewish people, uh, which of course should also be a democracy. Uh, but if those choices are in tension with one another, my uh, democratic values that I grew up with as an American run very deep, and I would have to say I'd have to. Uh, we'd have to consider uh, whether we might support that, and, and maybe it's not as bad as I uh, as some others. Uh, in reading the analysis, it's actually one of the worst options uh, because of the way it would force two communities to live together that are really not compatible with one another. Uh, separation has always been the model that we have pursued in previous efforts, and for good reason. Uh, these two communities, with all of their tra historical traumas, with all of their conflicting narratives, uh, with all of their sense of having been victimized each by the other from terrorism, from occupation, and in other ways, uh, are uh, very likely, if pushed into one uh, polity, to end up in, in dramatic communal strife, intercommunal strife. Uh, just imagine a parliament, a Knesset, which had equal representation, more or less, uh, between uh, Palestinians and, and Jews, trying to uh, determine whether or not Palestinian refugees would be allowed to come and settle in that uh, in, in that country. A life and death question for those two communities. Easy to imagine that leading to almost Balkan-style uh, uh, disruptions and violence and, uh, and intercommunal strife, something that could draw the United States in to need to intervene, something that could uh, lead uh, people who have the opportunity to leave to do so in a sort of brain drain. Um, and so uh, that was a surprise to me, that an, uh, an idea that is sometimes floated as a, uh, a reasonable compromise, an off-ramp, if you can't get to two states, really has tremendous downsides associated with it. Uh, again, I think from the perspective of U.S. interests, trying to be a security partner with all the benefits that we derive from the U.S.-Israel security relationship in that situation, we find our interests very much harmed. You know, I think uh, it is important to know that there is still a plurality among Israelis and Palestinians for the two-state solution. And this is noteworthy because despite not having any success in, you know, moving the needle on a two-state solution and despite uh, serious efforts by spoilers and by uh, very uh, uh, strong uh, stakeholders that try to undermine the two-state solution, we still have the plurality. However, it used to be a majority. And it is, and it's declining, and especially declining among uh, Palestinian youth. Um, and I, you know, I can't blame them. The the, the peace uh, process has not delivered a state uh, which was promised to them. Um, you know, with that said, I'd say what was surprised, what was surprising to me on on two sides, and those are again, those are on the the fringe, right? Because most Israelis and Palestinians do not think this way. But I was surprised at some of the people that we spoke to about um, the honesty with which they described um, how indifferent they are to, you know, the fate of Palestinians. Um, this is something that I found quite surprising. Um, I also was surprised to hear from Palestinians that said that they are going to uh, call for a one-state solution, uh, hoping, thinking that Israel, uh, that they would become equal rights in Israel. And this is something that, um, you know, Dan said for his reasons why he thought this was not a bad uh, fallback option. But I think um, there's a failure to understand that Israeli society... Uh, 
yeah, they want uh, a Jewish and democratic state, but they're unif- this is society is very unified around uh, Zionism and the idea of a Jewish state, and I don't think this is a compromise that they're gonna that anyone is gonna go for. In terms of surprises, I want to touch on this idea of a single democratic state, which Shira and Dan also touched on in their answers. A lot of the people that we spoke to when we were conducting the interviews for this study, frankly, came off as a little bit deluded or, or they're deluding themselves or, or fooling themselves. Everyone on the right has their favorite Palestinian or their favorite Jordanian or their favorite Arab who they talk to who tells them what they want to hear. And that is kind of the basis for their iterations of a, a non-democratic state or a Jordanian option. And so their ideas are kind of out there. And on the left, you also have the Confederation, which is a very utopian idea, and it's framed as being more realistic than a a traditional two-state model, which I don't agree with that assessment. And then you talk to the one democratic state people, which, as as Shira and Dan uh, alluded to, is kind of the most utopian in terms of its aspirations, but has some of the most uh, significant negative downstream consequences. But the people that we talked to about that solution, one thing that came up time and again with them is that these people who who support one democratic state or one binational state would say, I know that what I'm supporting is a non-starter today. I know that what I'm supporting is not realistic with, with the actors that are on the ground today. I know that it's not something that is going to gain traction, maybe not even within my lifetime, but give it 50 years, give it 100 years, this is where it's going to end up. So I think that that kind of self-awareness, but also self-assuredness of, of a very long arc of history uh, is, is interesting and distinct from the way that the other uh, people are thinking about their favorite outcomes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, and I think that it, it's a real and legitimate view that, that is held by a lot of people who support a single democratic state. And as Shira mentioned, it's also a generational divide Uh, among Palestinians. And we spoke to uh, people at a Palestinian think tank in Ramallah, and we spoke to one researcher who came of age during the Oslo process and was supportive of a traditional two-state model and, you know, told us everything that Israel Policy Forum would want to hear as an organization. And then we spoke to one of his researchers, who's a a younger guy in, in his 30s, and came of age with very different perspective, very different experiences, and he's all in for one state, equal rights, very critical of the Palestinian Authority and the PLO uh, from the angle that he views them as collaborators with Israel and as subcontractors for the occupation and as pursuing this red herring of a two-state solution. So I think that those are all trends also to watch and not necessarily something that we, we completely foresaw going into this study. So you bring up about trends in the future, and I just want to ask the question, where do we go from here? We have two big elections coming up. Um, The U.S. election is coming up in November, uh, and the Trump plan had just been announced a couple weeks ago, and differs greatly from past administrations' work towards ending the conflict. Um, There's also a, a possibility that there could be a Democratic administration back in office next January. Um, So how can a future administration utilize findings in this report to advance the prospects of Israeli-Palestinian peace? And what will this do towards U.S.-Israeli relations even in the future? I think before President Trump issued his plan, most analysts, and I think we all agree, 
would have said that the most likely scenario among the non-two-state scenarios studied by, uh, by the team uh, was a continuation of the status quo. Some kind of kicking the can down the road, conflict management, maintaining the basic structures of the Oslo uh, agreements that have put in place a Palestinian authority that originated with the idea that eventually that would mature into a two-state solution. And uh, maybe it's not a static situation, actually. The study uh, explains why that's an illusory concept. As settlements expand, as violence flares with Hamas and Gaza, as uh, there's going to be a Palestinian leadership change in the near, t near future. Uh, nevertheless, the prospect of maintaining that basic structure for some period of time was the most likely scenario. Uh, the Trump plan uh, scrambles that expectation. Uh, because it issues a plan that it calls a two-state solution, although it is not in any meaningful sense. Uh, my colleagues may address that. Uh, it's unimplementable because no Palestinian was involved in its drafting uh, by the Palestinians' own choice, in my view a mistake, but also by the administration's own inability to engage them. And it doesn't describe a state with any of the indicators of sovereignty. Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian public will, will reject it. The only part of it that is implementable, and which now a joint U.S.-Israeli committee is apparently doing initial mapping work to try to implement in the next weeks and months, is the unilateral Israeli annexation of some 30 percent of the West Bank. Uh, and that would clearly uh, make impossible the later establishment of a functional Palestinian state as part of a two-state solution. That is a, there's a lot riding, of course, on the Israeli election uh, on uh, Monday, March 2nd. Uh, and, of course, the U.S. election in November as to whether that uh, annexation is fully carried out, whether it will be recognized by the United States, whether, indeed, if it is recognized by the United States, a Democratic administration in 2021 would withdraw that recognition. So uh, there are a lot of unknowns about what circumstances will uh, greet the next administration uh, if, indeed, there's even a change. If there is a change, I think uh, this study will provide some useful uh, and analytical uh, tools and, and a way to evaluate how to try to uh, steer back onto the path of keeping the two-state solution alive and viable, but also uh, preparing for the ability to manage one of the alternatives, if uh, not alternatives, one of the uh, different scenarios if we, if we end up in it. It would be likely that that new administration would try to restore uh, aid to the Palestinian Authority, security cooperation, uh, institution building, the main features that have helped preserve two states and buy more time. I think that's all that can be done right now given the current Israeli and Palestinian leadership. Not, uh, they're not capable of that negotiation. Uh, but by putting in front of both parties and in front of the, the, the U.S. audiences as well, uh, what life will look like, how U.S. interests will be affected, how our security partnership with Israel will be affected, how Jordan's stability will be affected, how the stability of Israeli society will be affected. Even the prospect of a real erosion of policy stability uh, between different administrations uh, that will come and go over the next decades in American life, uh, it might help refocus everybody on the need to buy that time and avoid sliding toward one of these different scenarios. What this proposal does from the Trump administration is more uh, have a political effect on the debate here in the United States and in Israel. Um, it changes the goalposts of the conversation around the two-state solution and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So in Israel, it's now very difficult for any aspiring Israeli prime minister, regardless of their own personal feelings, uh, to accept anything less 
than the very generous annexation package that the Trump administration has put on the table. And I think that's borne out in the very pained and contorted statements that Benny Gantz has been making about annexation. He'll say things like, I support Jordan Valley annexation, but only in coordination with Jordan and the Palestinians. Knowing full well that Jordan and the Palestinians don't support this, so in practice it means he doesn't support annexation. But the reason that he even has to go through this verbal gymnastics is because an Israeli voter could reasonably ask the question, why would you accept anything less than the United States has now put on the table? I think that's there very purposefully in terms of how the administration designed the uh, proposal. And then in the American political debate, for the longest time, our conception of a two-state solution was based on the Clinton parameters and the Bush II uh, roadmap. And now there's a new set of parameters, uh, Trump parameters, uh, that one side can refer back to and say, this is the true two-state solution. And again, as, as Dan has addressed and as Shira and I write in the study, it's not a two-state solution in practice, but in word, they can say, we have the, the true two-state solution. Anything short of this is anti-Israel. And I think that's something that will have a really serious effect on the political debate, especially as Israel promises to be one of the most fraught, if not the most fraught, foreign policy issues in this uh, presidential election cycle here in the U.S. So I think that we, we should definitely keep an eye out for how people are discussing the two-state solution and the goalposts around it, both here and in Israel, because the debate around these different models will definitely find its way there. I think, and it all depends on what happens uh, uh, in the elections uh, in Israel Monday, uh, March uh, 2nd, and later, of course, uh, in the United States in November 2020. Um, but there is a way to go forward from here that could be constructive. Uh, I'm not saying the most likely way, but I think there is a way. Uh, the Israelis and Palestinians, as you know, Dan said, uh, same leaderships for now. We're not seeing a change. Uh, they're clearly not ready for bilateral peace negotiations. Certainly not under the Trump plan. But if, even if the Trump plan was had been introduced, I don't think that the two sides were ready. Uh, but there are um, interim steps that Israel can take independently, um, and those would be uh, renouncing it claims in some parts of the West Bank, uh, strengthening the Palestinian Authority, uh, politically, economically, security-wise, um, and not strengthening its uh, rival movement, Hamas. Um, in that regard, uh, we can also use the Trump plan constructively, even though it was not des designed this way, and I know the chances for doing so are pretty remote at this point, but it is possible that um, Israel could allow the Palestinian Authority, the PA, to assume control of the approximately 30% of Area C that is granted to Palestine under the Trump plan. So in a sense, not necessarily unilaterally annex territory, but rather uh, grant the Palestinians uh, control over territory that is designed to be theirs anyway. Um, it's also an opportunity to revisit Israel control of the two neighborhoods um, in Jerusalem that are supposed to be the Palestinian uh, capital. We're talking about Shoafat and uh, Kfar Aqib. These are uh, part of the Jerusalem municipality, only a name. They are behind a separation barrier anyway. And uh, you have uh, members of the current Israeli government that have tried to push them out 
anyway out of Jerusalem so this is an opportunity to do so and of course maybe it's an opportunity to revisit the security architecture of the IDF um, in the West Bank um, I'm not sure it is likely but this is how we can put a positive spin on all that so I want to wrap things up um, if there's one message that you can what you want to convey to our audience what is it and where can they find hope in all of this? <laughs> to me, the hope is it's something I've said before. I think that uh, despite uh, fatigue from uh, what seems to be a long peace process, although in, in practice there hasn't been a peace process uh, for many years, but despite the fatigue and failed promises and uh, strong stakeholders that are working against it, we still find that the two populations uh, are still pro two-state solution. And uh, so I believe that with the right leadership, um, support for the two-state so solution can rise on both sides. Um, but of course, change of leadership is not a policy prescription. But we have seen how leadership can influence public opinion and how leadership uh, can make what seems completely impossible possible uh, in a very short period of time, including in the Arab-Israeli arena. Begin and Sadat were not considered likely candidates to achieve the Israel-Egyptian peace treaty that they did. And uh, in a very short period of time, they went from being the least likely candidate you would expect to uh, the great peacemakers that they're remembered as. Uh, the same is true of uh, Rabin and King Hussein. Uh, so we know that it's possible. Uh, Shira says you can't count on it, you can't design a policy totally around it, but buying the time that enables uh, those leaders to come to the fore to reassess interests, to uh, have frank conversations with their own people, maybe even to surprise themselves. I think Begin and Sadat did surprise themselves, as well as the world, is still something that's available. And a study like this that helps those leaders and the publics confront the realities of the alternative pathways uh, with all the downsides they contain uh, for each side's own interests, for security, for Israel's Jewish and democratic character, for Palestinian self-determination, for U.S. interests, for other regional considerations, uh, would probably be a useful tool for any leader so motivated uh, to try to put uh, the, uh, the, the uh, negotiations back on the track toward two states. Something that we saw in the interviews that we conducted for this study is that people are really shaped by their perceptions and what they grew up with and people who grew up around the Oslo peace process tended to be more supportive of a two-state solution. People who were younger than that were more skeptical and, and understandably and, and, and justifiably so, but at the same time uh, if you take people and, and give them another framework uh, to look at things and another lens uh, through which to understand this, and, a, and a, if a different generation grows up seeing a different kind of U.S.-Israel relationship or a different kind of Palestinian-Israeli relationship, uh, then I think that the goalposts uh, can be moved back and adjusted a little. Uh, something that I came away from in this is that I don't like to say that uh, a two-state solution uh, will ever be impossible, or frankly that any of these other uh, these other models are impossible. I don't want to deal in absolutes. There's no iron laws to any of this. So I don't think that we should ever come to a place where we say we can't walk back because I don't think that serves any purpose. I think that we need to be realistic. I think that we need to understand that other models may uh, 
gain traction and there are legitimate reasons for that and there, there are bad reasons for that also uh, but I think that there's still not a reason to say something is totally off the table. Shira, Evan, Ambassador Shapiro, thank you for your time today. Your work on the study is so imperative, and I really want to encourage our listeners to go and read the full study, which you can find by going to ipf.li forward slash new study. And there you can explore the full contents of the study as well as the executive summary, and you can view the one pager. So thank you again to our guests and to our listeners. I hope to see you on our next episode. Thank you, Margo. Thank you. Thank you.